Okay, good morning. So you have been now, uh, perhaps quite theoretically, uh, trying to have a look. What does it mean that we can predict some function? Well, so what is the uh, classification accuracy uh, or the precision recall? ROC curves. Uh, Laminan was talking about regression. So it's all about predicting from the input X, predicting output Y. Uh, Speed uh, some real value number or be it a class. Class A versus B. Uh, positive is negative. Um, so today we are going to uh, go through most standard uh, machine learning techniques and start with the decision trees, uh, look at the uh, probabilistic Bayes methods and uh, K nearest neighbors, neural networks, really not much, but just mention the neural networks, and the uh, support vector machines. So it's going to be quite intense uh, walking through some of the some of the ideas in how to learn some machine learning models. <coughs> you have heard about decision trees. Uh, who, uh, who has not heard about decision trees at all? Everybody has heard about decision trees. No? If this, then do that. And then you can you can you can create manually create guidelines for somebody how to act. If outlook you look out it's today it's uh, rainy. What to do next? Then uh, study the wind. <coughs> if the, the wind is strong, rainy and strong wind. Hey, we should not go to play tennis in that weather. Right? Uh, if the rain is strong. But a wind is weak, or maybe we should go and do some exercise. So you can make decisions based on the attributes and their values. So the tree, you look out on the window, decide is it sunny, then you check the humidity, uh, not that the very big problem in here. Uh, if, if it's sunny but very humid, then it's bad weather for sports. If the humidity is okay, then can play tennis. So this is called a decision tree. And uh, the, the, one of the first and most popular standard algorithms uh, for creating such trees is ID3. And uh, invented by this chap, uh, Australian chap Ross Quinlan. Iterative dichotomizer 3, uh, don't ask me why I find this name, ID3. Iterative, yeah, you can understand, iteratively. Uh, builds the tree. It's very simple concept and builds a decision tree. So let's walk through how to create such decision trees from the data. Uh, data, the, the attribute that we try to predict uh, is uh, play tennis or not. You can uh, look out the window, observe you live next to the tennis court, and then you make observations. Today, well, in particular day, it was sunny, hot. High humidity, weak wind, 
Nobody paid payments. Uh, rainy, cool, normal temperature, normal humidity, weak wind, people are playing tennis. And you're trying to build a decision tree when the people are coming to play tennis. Or when your customers are going to come to shop uh, in your shop. Right? What are the uh, attributes and what is output? So how do you make the decision tree out of that data? What would the decision trees look like in this case? There are four attributes and we are trying to predict the fifth. What is the first decision you have to make? Output. Sorry? The output. Output. Uh, you would not start from humidity. There are four. One of these four attributes should be the first decision. Let's study that attribute, right? And then we go left, right? If there are more values than two, in here it's sunny overcast rain, in here hot, mild, cool, high, normal, high, normal. Here is only two values. Humidity, you can do two decisions, right? In output temperature, you can have three values, and wind at the moment is strong and wind, again, two values. If you choose humidity, you have two choices, wind, two choices, outlook, three choices, etc. So these are the, this is the data, and we want to predict this. So we, we are going to test every possible attribute. If the first one is one of these four attributes, uh, look at this uh, column in here. Based on output, you can uh, create three classes, wind, two classes, humidity, two classes, temperature, three classes. Which one of these should be the root of that tree? Be greedy. What is the best choice for root? Well, all the data is still there. You just go left or right or the middle yes. way. Right? Yes. All the data is going to be there. Yes, I mean. <coughs> oh. You are not eliminating data, you are making it smaller. Yes? And then you can recursively apply the same thing. Right? That is the point. You do first choice, and then you have three left for that subtree, and three left for some other subtree. And they don't need to use the same attribute in the next level. You are going to split and make a recursive algorithm out of this. Uh, and we, the heuristic in here is very simple, greedy heuristic. We try to do the best selection at this moment, looking at the data. This moment, what is the best? Maybe if you are allowed to combine all the things, oh, that's true. This and this and this. Oh, I should rearrange. Put that one first because even even if that did not look so good, that creates computational complexity. That generates uh, all kinds of combinatorics. How many combinations you have? This algorithm is very simple. You start with a greedy choice. Question is, what is a greedy function? Then you make more decisions. 
Is, is there a store involved that is like bought my course or something like that? So in here there is just just let's just let, let's have a look at the data again. There is 14 uh, uh, examples, training examples. One, two, three, four, five uh, times no, and therefore nine times yes. Well, one could say that if you don't have any idea about the library, you, you would just say that yes, people are going to pay names because nine out of about nine compared to five, it's more probable that people will play games, right? And and that's where we go to the probabilities and Bayes methods. But at the moment, this is five uh, five nine split the if you look at the uh, these precision recall values, the accuracy would not be very good. If you just do the yes or no one or the other way. Now we have three splits. Uh, in this case, we will have two, three, three, two. They are kind of equal, equally bad. But this class out of overcast yes all time, all the time. So it seems that we have at least settled this one case in here. But we have two bad cases still left. In here it's uh, yeses, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, two, three, three. So we can calculate what is the, how, how, how even the classes would be. Well, ideal case you can make based on the one attribute, you can make the correct decision always, right? Then, then you are there. Uh, this and this, you have to do something further. Uh, we start from here. <coughs> And we t test each one of the four possibilities, but now we have to somehow say each one improved the best our chances to build a decision tree. Which one reduced uncertainty the most? Which one gave us the most information uh, that we need? Uh, which one uh, provided us the, the largest information gain? Over what we had in the in the previous stage. So, uh, informativeness of the probability distribution is something that is called uh, well entropy, the concept in the in the uh, compression and data communications is the entropy of the information. Uh, in here, uh, probability of some class, uh, how many times. And then, uh, let's see. Uh, entropy is expressed by this value. Uh, uh, we have probability distributions to two uh, to uh, multiple classes. In here, uh, it could be just two classes, yes or no. But probability of the class times uh, binary logarithm of that. Class. So basically, what does it mean? It say is that if if the probabilities are equal for two classes, then you have to spend one bit to represent one class for the other. If you have the case where ninety nine percent of the cases are from one class. And only one percent is from the other. 
He didn't want to spend 99 uh, times one bit. He would like to get somehow the coding there, where your message would be encoded for this. Almost always, it's uh, it's this 99%. It's almost almost always that class. You want to reduce that representation in the bits. And the only one exception, occasionally, uh, that is from the other class, you want to, okay, then you spend a little bit more bits for that, but it happens only very infrequently. So it says how frequently uh, something happens, and then the, what is the probability? So it's, it's, it's the information theory point of view, how much information we, uh, how many bits do we need to spend to express some information. If, if there is absolute certainty that there is always this one class, then we don't need to spend any bits. Right? That's clear. And then the information uh, content of that vector is zero, in a way. Uh, so that's what we want to get. We want to have the information content that, that goes into, into zero as rapidly as possible. So based on this formula, what can we say? We can, uh, we can actually, before the split, we had this 5 and 9 no's and yes's, right? And the entropy, or the amount of bits, on average, for these 40 uh, cases that we want to encode, is 0.94 bits per 14 cases. If we apply, uh, make the split on output where this becomes all yeses, uh, then in this column, this probability would be zero, and this component would be zero. In here, we had a, a 9 5 split, and it would be 0 0.94 bits on average. But in here, where we have 2 and 3, it's almost equal. If, if it's 50 50 percent, uh, then we have to spend one bit always. 50 50 split always requires this one bit. Uh, but in here, uh, 2 3, we can get away with, with slightly less bits 0 0.97. Right? Information content somehow is, or entropy is 0 0.97. So information entropy for this column is not 0 0.97, and also for this one because 2332 is equal. But it happens uh, 5 times out of 14 in here, and 5 times out of 14 in there, and 4 times out of 14 we can get away with 0 bits. So in here, we, sorry, for this column we can calculate uh, information content uh, or entropy here. Uh, so where is this? Uh, before split, it's 0.94. This sum, but after the split, if you would do this uh, split, what remains in here would be 0.69. So this shows how much we reduce the entropy, or what is the information gain? The information gain in here is 0.25. From this to this, we gained 0.25 by this formula. We made things more 
uneven in a way. We, we solve one class and then the others, uh, although for both classes it slightly increased 0 0.94, now it's 0 0.97, but it only applies for 5 out of 14. And this one was resolved. So this one gave us information gain of 0 0.25. Uh, this is what it looks like, uh, what we looked at this uh, entropy measure. When the classes are equal, 50-50, uh, then it maximizes at 1. When the distribution is uneven, 0.1 and 0.9, then the entropy is somewhere, somewhere 0.4. Yeah? If you go from, from this, you can get uh, to one nine split, then we have information gain 0.6. If all are in one class or the other class, then it becomes zero. We don't need to spend any bits to represent that information. Uh, so this was based on entropy, but other indexes could be used. Uh, what is the misclassification error or Gini index? Gini indexes, you have heard about inequality in the society. The, the, the riches versus the poor, how unequal things are. Uh, so these different indices could be used, and the entropy of this information content message uh, measure could be used, and the goal is from this 50-50 split that is maximal, in our case bad, half of the cases you make wrong classification. We want to the, get to the case where we classify everything correct in one way or the other way. So the algorithm uh, just tries every uh, possible attribute, every possible split, calculates what would happen to the information uh, content in these cases, what, which one maximizes the information gain the most, and makes that choice. So we start. Uh, we, we start training uh, the root, try every possible uh, attribute that would calculate this information gain, select the one that gives us a maximum information gain, and then we can recursively apply the same. Very simple, okay? uh, So that's, that's what algorithm uh, does. You start from, from large data, you start splitting according to the uh, greedy choice. Uh, the improvements of that algorithm uh, extension C4.5 uh, starts supporting continuous attributes. We have this very clear classes, right? Yes, no, or high, mild, or whatever, high temperature, negative temperature classes. But you have numeric attributes. And for numerical ranges, your split could be anywhere, right? Anywhere in the data on the x axis. All the possible splits could be tried. So you can actually support continuous variable attributes by testing every possible cut point. Uh, then sometimes data is missing, so you can uh, deal with the missing values. Uh, and then there is a okay, I, I will talk about the pruning. This is very this is very, very important. Uh, I think this pruning uh, comes, uh, the discussion comes uh, next. Turns out that B 
building very large trees is a very bad idea. Small trees, small rules that explain the data are better than very large trees. So you can train the algorithm very large tree, but pruning means that you cut off the, the branches, like and now you're going to cut the uh, apple tree, actually you're late already for apple trees cutting, but you prune the branches, too many branches to make the tree smaller. Uh, and then variants, uh, like uh, yeah, more commercial uh, variants as well. So ID3, C4.5, C5.0, they're all basically the similar types of, uh, of decision tree learning or rule learning based on very simple concepts uh, to start with. So decision trees are easy and efficient. You can print them out, you can interpret what the heck is based on that, how do you make the decision? How do you come and end up in this decision? Because that was it was sunny, it was windy, it was low humidity. Yeah. That's why we concluded that. You can interpret that. Uh, we applied heuristic. We made a greedy choice first. Greedy does not always give you the best uh, output. Right? So to find the optimal tree, the smallest possible tree that uh, explains all the data is very hard. Everything optimizing for size is actually very com uh, complicated uh, in terms of complexity. And uh, we need a pruning. Uh, what happens with this is, of course, that uh, if you have if you have two-dimensional uh, data, we have pluses and, uh, pluses and minuses. Occasionally, there could be some errors. So what happens is that the decision tree somehow cuts this way, right? Test case attributes, we have resolved that class, and in here we will do this cut, we have resolved that one, and then in here we could still apply either this or that doesn't matter. So this would be three where on the left uh, there is uh, larger than uh, whatever it is, xi. Uh, then there is everything is class label minus. We go to the left, uh, then we apply the test on y larger than that this one, if it's larger than uh, no, yes. If it's if it's uh, less than this, then the class table is plus. If it's larger than, uh, then we still may have another test, and then we have minuses and pluses. That's, that's how what it looks like. So we start putting these uh, attribute by attribute decisions. Okay, the problem, I'm trying to come back to this random forest. From the trees we all, all from the trees we should also see the forest behind the tree, right? Um, 
what happens with a tree when we start, or any, any classification, if we start keep making it larger, 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 then it ends up in the situation that on the border, well, this is just illustrative, it's not decision tree. The decision tree would be linear trust. But on the border, there will be cases which we really try to make hard to get into our classifier. So if, if we overtrain our classifier, we get this free line. Very hard trying to capture this, not to make this error in the training. If you train hard, we can train it so that we don't disable that in the training phase. But you can look at the green in here. It's very complicated boundary because we overtrain. Uh, while the simpler one would be much better for future predictions. So simpler methods, smaller trees, better than large trees. So the longer we train, or the harder we train on the uh, training data, it actually may end up making the performance worse. And of course, I don't need to remind you anymore that we train on the training data, but you test always on the data that was not used in the training. That, that is the ultimate thing that we need to optimize. We train, but we test the quality on the untrained, well, on the data that was not used in the training. So, uh, if we have overtrained the decision tree, then we have made the decision tree very deep. Yeah? We started with million instances, but we have, uh, in here we make the one, two cases in the Ps. Then, by pruning, we have to cut it back, delete those nodes that don't that get too deep, uh, far away. So there is a lot of art and discussion, art and research on, on the pruning methods actually. Do it top down, start, well, okay, we can stop it here, I cut everything off uh, from this uh, onwards, or bottom up, I start from the leaves, and I stop somewhere, right? Question. Yes. If you cut uh, from bottom up, uh, how do you stop them? You have, have all the leaves. You look at every leaf, and perhaps when you have this situation there, only two. Well, well, for example, you could you could have a okay. We have one one in here. Do we need that small decision? But we had previously we had one two three four one. Maybe we should stop at this four one and not make this cut and that cut. So. Why did we even bother making this one when we would have had uh, 4-1 and all perfect in here? With a single decision, we get almost perfect classified. With a single node, it would have been already resolved. Maybe that was an, even an error, right? You don't know that. But you just think that simple concepts are negative positive. And, uh, and then there is a, I did mention this Occam's razor principle that said that simpler hypotheses are better. So this minimum description length principle says that the, 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 the trees, the models that they can represent as small as possible are better. The problem 
the smallest tree is one node or zero node. We can't just say the smaller model is better, right? Why? Because smallest is no model. We just uh, do the majority class. Nine five uh, prediction of nine cases prepare from one, five from the other. We just go by that. That is the smallest uh, model. So what minimum description like principle says, and this is a very theoretical, simple idea that can be made very deep theory. Uh, it's not only the size of the model that we want to minimize, but it's the model plus the error that we make. So it's the length of the model plus how much effort we would need to make in the number of bits to show which ones are the exceptions, which ones, which ones are the misclassifications. So if you think of the, of the decision tree principle, uh, this 5-9, okay, the small model is uh, just label all uh, on this majority class 9, but five times we have to spend these, whatever, 0.97 bits times 5. That's how much we spend on exceptions. Is it worth to generate a new node, or is it worth to just say which one was the exception on that case? Which one gives you a smaller representation in the number of bits? Very theoretical question, concept. Because nobody can know what is the shortest representation in bits. You can encode things in many different ways. Optimal encoding. This implies optimal encoding. But the, the principle is that you can, you can make, say that in bits you can count how big is our model and how much uh, exceptions you make or how many, how many mistakes you make. And the combination of the trade-off between the two is what, is, uh, what we want to uh, minimize, the combined measure. So the trees, well, this is, uh, I think I, 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 made, I checked also yesterday on this website, just some company providing some decision tree or whatever. There are lots of companies that try to do the analytics software. It could be a decision tree, somehow visualizing how many cases go down each path. For any node, you can say what is the uh, quality for this node, some confidence is how many instances fall in here, uh, what is the Difference in these labels, you can explore the data, you can look at the decision trees in different ways. In here, uh, another uh, data I made uh, yesterday from this company website, if you go down this, this, this route to here, this covers 262 instances, 27% of the data, somehow makes a distribution visualization in here, and what is the error if we stop at this node? Or what does the entire subtree do in here? Right? You can explore these kinds of trees. You can plot them out. You can read the trees uh, uh, visually. Uh, on the training data, if we if we are greedy, we our first choice is always somehow defined by this information gate. Maybe there were two choices, and we have to choose one. Why is that one better than the other one? Or what happens if we get a slightly different set of data? Our tree would look, would look slightly different. 
so that's why we jump now from the single tree to the forest. How many trees is a forest? Many. It probably varies from country to country. I've been uh, in England into the forest that I would call a, a small park in here. Uh, it varies from country to country. Uh, we don't need to put all the trust on a single tree. Like, like in this classifier, you don't need to believe just one classifier. But if many weak classifiers tell you the same story, that's probably more true. So how to combine things together? If I do some majority voting here, that's, I want each one of you to be some tree, you tell me one thing, you tell me something else, blah, blah, blah. Each one of you is a decision tree, and I make the forest out of you, and then decide based on that. That implies that every tree has to be slightly different from each other. Uh, and we, how do we make di different trees? We randomize. We give you one subset of the data, you will have another subset, random subset of the data, first of all. One gets this minus in here, the other does not get. Uh, that is one. Okay. There is a lot of data, if there, well, hopefully there is a lot of data. If there is a lot of data, you can afford giving each one a slightly different subset. Every tree will be slightly different. The other problem, we don't have just Four attributes. <coughs> we have zillions of attributes. You can come up with uh, thousands of different possible attributes characterizing people in the in the medical system or in the shopping center, right? depending on what do they shop, or books by which words they use, and you don't know which features are important. So you can randomly select subset of the data for each decision tree. But you can even randomly select which attributes you feed that. Because you don't know which attributes are important. So every tree will be uh, trained on different subsets of the data and different attributes. But there will be many trees uh, trained. And what happens is that each one of them individually is not perhaps so good, but collectively if there, are, if, if there are some strong signals, if there are some signals in the data, each one captures part of that signal well. Yeah? So you can just do majority voting by combining things together, and you do the majority, well, you, you do that as how many things, uh, one way or the other way, and you can make the decision. And moreover, what does it provide you is Each tree will be uh, different, the rules of the trees will be different, the order will be slightly different. But if some attribute is important, like in here, if X attribute is important, there may be still hundreds of other attributes. If X is at all important, most of the trees that have this X in their training uh, would have used that in some at least some time. Right? So you can count how many 
which attributes have been used for splitting in how many different splits, how many times. And you can get even the feature selection based on if there will be many times some the same attribute used for classifying, then that is important. That is probably important feature in the data. So out of these trillions of features, many trees, if one feature is used by many trees, that feature is probably important. So you get very powerful thing. Combining many of the classifiers together plus also uh, being able to select for important features. Later you can, for example, get rid of the other features and maybe you can retrain re on less uh, features if you want. So random forest, uh, it's actually not so old concept. It's, uh, I think it's less than 10 years. So ID3 is very old, from 1960s. Uh, I think it was, they have that slide. Did it say here, the year? Oh, it did not say the year. You can Google for the, for the time when ID3 was invented. But random forest is relatively new concept, surprising. All these other methods were already like superior. These both vector machines we are going to look at. Oh, they are superior. And then very simple concept of combining trees together made this very powerful. I don't know if you see these dots in here. I can't see <coughs> the reds and greens are mixed in here. So this is the training data for trying to separate reds and greens from each other. Uh, so by regression, well, basically uh, some logistic reg regression or well, two Gaussian distributions overlaid. So this is that, like some method tries to do the re regression methods separate between the classes linear separation. But this is what the roughly these decision trees or random forest will provide. So each one somehow is represented by some tree. And many of them together, you get this majority voting. The green area is all uh, that should be labeled green by majority voting, and then the red one. Of course, there will be some areas which are not covered so well. But you can see that from these, from strictly straight lines according to axis, you can get almost something that resembles much more. Uh, a different shape of the decision boundaries. Uh, there are websites and toolboxes that try to do this, compare these different learning methods by somehow given this data, how the different classifiers would label every possible point there. And this is kind of a simple case where you have two distributions and you could say that they are is fine in here. Uh, but not on X or Y, it's a combination of the two features. So we would somehow need to have this combination of the features in, in this actual decision making. But the random forest gets over with that by just doing random uh, this uh, random subsets and majority voting. Uh, so on individual x1, x, uh, x and y axis, you can't separate the two classes, but if you have somehow combined feature, uh, 
linear combination of the features, like in here, you could do the separation between the two classes. Uh, but random forest does not necessarily do that. Although you could, do, you, you, of course, you could invent at every, we said that you, 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 you use every different uh, attribute, right, in each decision. If you would generate all kinds of different uh, combinations, then you have just more choices, right? Your exploration space grows. But you could invent combinations of features also in the decision tree. But it would be actually computationally harder. Okay, uh, so. What are the references in here? No, I should have deleted this one. Uh, okay, it's just many, many references on the decision trees, but the, the ID3 is not in here, so that's not bad. Uh, probabilities. Um, so did we have in the beginning of the course, did you, did you look at this Bayes, you looked at the condition probabilities at least. Yeah. You tried to calculate condition on A, what is the probability of B? Um, who knows the Bayes formula? Or what it roughly says. Nobody knows. What Bayes formula is good for is that this condition probability of A given B. But what it says is that it could be calculated from, from the reverse probability of condition probability of B given A plus the probabilities of A and B individually by this form. Uh, what is the probability of uh, A given B? What is the formula for that? That is the uh, that is the probability of A and B together, A's and B A and B together, over what? Over probability of all B's. Sure, if I can, if I can get some. Um, 
Uh, probability of A is what? 1, 2, 3, 4 out of 6. Uh, 4 out of 6, right? Probability of B is uh, 1, 2, uh, 3 cases with yes out of 6. Uh, probability of uh, A given B is we look at B 1, 2, 3, and for these 1, 2, 3 cases, when do we have A? Is 1, 2 cases out of 3. Probability of A given B is 2 thirds. What is the probability of B given A? Probability of B given A, A is this, 1, 2, 3, 4, and B is 1, 2, out of 4. But this formula says, how from this, how can we get this one from this one, if you know 1 and not the other Uh, these are the overall probabilities, um, and uh, let me see. Probability of A and B is uh, A and B is one, two. Probability of A and B in here is two out of six, and probability of B was. Uh, one half, three out of six. So probability of A given B should be. Uh, am I doing something? A given B, what if we calculate two thirds? Oh, it's divided by, it will be four over six, it's two thirds. What is this formula? So this is probability of A given B is A and B together divided by B. On the other hand, what is the probability of B given A? By symmetry, this is probability of A and B divided by probability of, of uh, A. Right? So from here, this and this are equal, so you can actually express this as this times this probability of A. So we can put in here, uh, this condition probability times P of A, we put in here, divided by P of B. And that's what the formula says. Simple, but why do we need that is somehow we are going to look at the classifier. We want to predict the class given all the attributes. From the attributes, we want to get the probability condition probability for the class. And how we calculate this 
if we apply the Bayes method, we would reverse it. We don't know the class. On these attributes, we don't know the class. But from the training data, we can have uh, reverse that, and from the, for that class, previously we have trained for that class, and what we, we, we can know what are the probabilities for the attributes for that class. Uh, you can spam. You train the spam messages. You want to classify a message by a spam. But you have trained previously the spam messages, and for all the spams, you know which words are probable in the spam messages. You can calculate from the training data all the words that are probable in the spam messages. And that's how you can label the mail, email as spam or ham. So, uh, I think it's exactly the same data, 14 cases. We, have, we want to apply some probability methods in here to predict the last column. Our first attempt in the probability is to just say we had one, two, three, four, five no's and nine cases. Yes, is we say that nine out of 14 probability is yes. Probability of yes is 9 out of 14, 64% we are making correct predictions, and no is 0 0.26. Yes, just based on majority voting here with these probabilities, we make the decision yes. But we want to take into account the attributes that are in here. How do they affect this output? In decision tree, we made the decision and then uh, try to uh, reduce the information gain. And here we want to stick to the probabilities. Let's look at one attribute uh, weak, strong. Weak, no strong, no weak, yes. You can calculate the condition probabilities. Probability of weak is 8. Probability of strong is 8. The 6 out of 14, we have. The probabilities for the for the attribute classes and for all the weak wind cases, probability of yes is six out of eight, and no is two out of eight. So we have the probabilities for the two classes. We have these condition probabilities in here, right? Based on attribute weak, what is the probability to say yes or no? Or strong, yes or no. We have all the, all these probabilities. We take more attributes, high and weak, and there are four cases of, of such, two and two, yes, no. Yeah. We can get more attributes on the, based on all the input attributes we want to predict the value. The problem that is in here is we have less cases. We, have, we don't have enough cases in here. And if we have more and more attributes, we have very little, like in the decision tree, at the end, ruining the decision tree at the leaves, we have very few cases. How can we make the prediction? If you take every attribute into account, how can we predict anything? Uh, but this is what the this is what the classifier does. So from the attributes we want to predict the output. We want from all the input attributes we want to predict the class. 
and we predict a class such that what this probability is higher, uh, class one or class two, which probability is higher? <coughs> that's what we make the prediction. Right? That's very simple. This is the Bayes uh, classifier. Uh, let's see. So this formula for X is we provide uh, predict class from X is conditional probability for C class one or, or class two. We compare these. Yeah. But in here we can apply this Bayes uh, theorem, and we can we can represent this uh, represent this one by this uh, uh, by this part. This one becomes this one. So conditional probability for class one. <coughs> we look out when people play tennis, and we conditionally look what is the weather out in the cases when they when they play tennis. So just plug in the base formula. Uh, Exactly the same formula. Where do we uh, call one class or the other? Both of them are divided by probability of x, probability of the attribute. But because this is equal on both sides, we can just get rid of that. Yeah. So this is what it boils down to. From here, we have just reversed. From x is we want to predict class, but we have reversed it for class. What what are the probability to observe that these x? And now class 1 and class 2 may have different probabilities because we may have lots of class 1 examples, few class 2 examples. So uh, the probability will be stronger for this side if there is, in general, more class 1. Uh, what are, we have to have very strong belief for class 2 if we can predict very correctly these attributes. So what happened next? Uh, oh yeah, this is just uh, taking uh, this one to there, the ratio of different classes, which one is more common or the other, C class, uh, probability of C2 divided by uh, probability of C1. So we just take that one there and this one there. So we have the ratio uh, between uh, from class one, X is class two, X is compared to class two and class two, uh, one frequency. Uh, okay, so so these are kind of tricks that we can trade for class one and class two. Just observe how frequently we have these attributes x for one class or the other class. Somehow the ratios of, of those uh, features. But uh, okay, I think I will. So this one is this label. The ratios. So basically, here we we know that when do we make one call red or blue? It will have to, have to be this cut point. But this is uh, we jumped to continuous variables in here. It's possible with the base classifier to go to continuous variables as well. So base classifier is kind of optimal 
if uh, we know the underlying distributions and we know all the probabilities and we can calculate those. But the problem is that we, we need to observe every possible combination of the attributes. Because we ask for a class, what is the combination of attributes, all the attributes together, right? And we don't have so much training data that we observe every possible combination of attributes. Otherwise, we just enumerate everything. So what happens is that why do we make it naive is uh, that we don't want to get condition probability for every combination of x. We want to make something simple. And the naive part of the phase classifier is the uh, is the, 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 the hypothesis, but the assumption, let's make a simple assumption. Attributes are independent. If the attributes are independent, then the joint probability will be the multiplication of the individual probabilities. What is the probability to observe Sunny? What is the probability to observe uh, what is the probability to observe humidity? And that's the, the same probability as sunny, windy, humid together. If there are dependencies, always when it rains, it's humid. That literally breaks the assumption, right? But we make the assumption that from the class we just look one attribute at a time. And uh, we get the joint distribution by just individual attributes one at a time. Because that's easy to calculate. And this is the basic. It's very easy to calculate what, what is the uh, uh, frequency of one or the other attribute for given class one attribute at a time. Rather than try to expect that we have all the combination of ten attributes in every possible way. Okay? We just calculate them individually. Uh, so, this is our base classifier. This ratio, we went through the ratio. How do we compare the ratios for class 1, for class one x plus 2x, and the, the ratio of those? So, we just, in here, we plug in the multiplication over individual x, x, y, different attributes. So, this joint has been rep represented by multiplication of probability of xy uh, by probability of xy given c1. Uh, so now we just need to count for class 1 and class 2 probabilities of having windy or not windy. Right? And this training has become so much simpler. And we just Come from wind, this one ratio, but basically uh, class 1 plus 2, for wind we need to just know uh, the ratio of C1 over C2. Uh, so for both classes, for each attribute, we just, we just need to uh, count the probabilities of observing that variable for this class, observing that variable for the other class. And uh, this multiplication 
uh, is just goes over these individual ratios. We multiply all the ratios together. That's what the score, what we will get. So if this score is larger than this ratio, then we can classify C1. So you can bit by bit just build up the classifier from these very simple steps that they give you rather powerful way to train the data because for, for spam messages and non-spam messages, you just need to count the frequencies of certain words. Now there is a problem <coughs> sometimes with the probabilities is that when you have many attributes and the probabilities are small, then when you multiply together small variables, you get even smaller, 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 you run out of the precision in the computer. What do you do then? You just take logarithms of those sides. You just take logarithm of this and logarithm of the multiplication will become sum of these individual logarithms. So the ratio, logarithmic ratio is just in the logarithm space and the logarithmic score is just sum of these logarithmic ratios. And then you compare the logarithmic score to the logarithm of these ratios. And then you get the uh, precision under control. So we did very concrete classes for the attributes in here. But it's uh, possible to go to the uh, continuous attributes through the kernel densities. What is the probability of well, kernel density estimation that we did earlier in the course? Uh, it can be generalized to continuous attributes. It's easy to implement, efficient. We just train on the data. It uh, does not overfit. It is interpretable. You can look at the probability of individual, uh, individual attributes, etc. And most of your spam filters actually work on this on these methods. In the Thunderbird or for this individual spam training. Uh, for two classes it works, but when you have many classes to separate then it does not work so well. And well, the bad well, points that is strongly here is kind of naive because we make the independence assumption for the attributes. And it's also linear because you look at the one attribute that you have. Okay, so we went through the decision trees and naive base. In most of these uh, uh, packages that you're using, R, NumPy, uh, different uh, libraries, you have the methods built in so you can train on these machine learning methods. And you get the classifier. You get the classifiers, you get these all the scores for the training data for other ROC curves, etc. And then you can also label your new data using that classifier. But let's, uh, okay, so we have other ideas in the toolbox. Uh, with uh, Lamirel, with you went through this. Uh, not the classifier, but this linear regression or regression where you just try to predict the real uh, valued function 
I'm going to skip those. You just try to fit some factor through the point uh, cloud, and one of those minimizes the minimizes the square root error of all these uh, misclassifications or, or the individual errors. Uh, so the goal is to find a function that minimizes this error, uh, overall error. Uh, minim minimizing the overall error is, is minimizing the average error, mean error. Uh, earlier in the, in the class we looked at median, sometimes it is more robust, median change is less than mean. You have one outlier and the mean changes a lot. But median, the 50% case, or the next one and the next one, these are very stable. Uh, so also the, also the regression can be used of the mean error, but the median error. But the optimization becomes slightly different. And that's where different optimization techniques that you can learn in the algorithmics class, differential evolution, genetic programming uh, would be helpful because in this surface search space you have to find the highest peaks or, or lowest mountain uh, the, the valleys. So the, this is the kind of the optimization technique. Okay, that was <laughs> very brief over the regression, and uh, uh, that was not part of my lecture. Classification. We, I thought about decision tree, attribute, left or right, next attribute, left or right, make the decision. All the probability based. For this class, what is the probability to observe that attribute? We want to label instances, in this case, a green instance, blue or red. Which one should it be? The reds and the blues are the training data, and the green is the test data. Which value should that be? Is it a blue square or red triangle? Red triangle. Why? Because you have two cases that are next to that, right? So the k nearest neighbor asks, let's look at the k nearest neighbor. Let's look at three nearest neighbors. Then we can do the majority vote. One, two, three. The nearest ones for this let's fetch from the database, the nearest neighbors in the high dimension database cases one, two, and three. Two out of three is red, let's label that red. All the training classified together. Just fetch the nearest neighbors, previous examples of this type, and classify. Why should we look at three nearest neighbors? <coughs> Why not 11? Why not 100? Five. If you look at the five nearest neighbors, what is the label? Then it's three out of five. Majority vote for blue. It's very simple. 
there is this unfortunate parameter k that you have to somehow assume or provide. But then the method is you just look up the previous similar cases, and based on those, you try to do the classification. You don't learn any complicated decision boundaries, etc. You just look at the previous instances. One nearest neighbor becomes this Voronoi diagram where K means uh, K means centers, so everything in that cell would be labeled by that class. Right? One neighbor, uh, one neighbor, one nearest neighbor neighborhood. So anything falling in this cell would be labeled the same as, as this one. Right? It's the same Voronoi diagram. But uh, if you if you require two or three, uh, then the uh, area will be slightly different. So, training is just storing and indexing all training instances, and the effort is on this indexing structure so that you can later fetch very quickly the nearest neighbors. That's not trivial to, to make the searches in high dimensional spaces. Which one is the nearest neighbor? So it's kind of trivial, easy to implement. Uh, asymptotically, when you have more and more, uh, some, well, points added in, in here, you can probably then prove that if there are more and more, then this uh, this method works well, and it works for many uh, for many many kinds of uh, data. But the efficiency may be problem, and you don't interpret; you just have the previous cases in the database. <coughs> And when you have small data sets, then you can't uh, get very good training results. Uh, okay, so a little bit of summary sizing here. Uh, decision trees, random forests, probabilistic models like naive Bayes things, and these can be generalized to some probabilistic models. The practical models are actually uh, probability models. Uh, Various methods extended to the uh, sort of tree models, etc. We still have to look at the kernel methods, and these kernels are different from kernel density estimations. We will look at the support vector machine concept. And uh, what we did not kind of, uh, and we are not going to cover, is you can combine different methods together. Like in the random forest case, I said that you just make too many in trees. Then you have a forest, and then you can do ensemble of the trees and ask the majority. But there are ways to, to sort of like try to boost or, or, or use your small amount of data to boost the classifier performance, etc. Just trying to apply many classifiers in the heuristic way to train faster your methods. So, this kind of uh, Different areas, different uh, different types of uh, methods in here. Yes, and it did not it did not mention the neural networks. Neural network in your brain or actually neurons, the pain, the sense of pain goes through the neurons. If, you, if multiple neurons give you the pain that the signal threshold is ex exceeded, 
and you will signal to the brain that there is something bad going on. Right? So the neuron is something that gets multiple inputs, multiple attributes. Windy, well, this wind, sunny, uh, well, the outcast, the, the humidity. Each one is in one of these attributes. We have data which has only four attributes, but it could be many, right? It gets many attributes as input. And then calculates very simple function that is a weighted sum of all the inputs. I put more weight on, say, windy aspect or less weight on the sun or overcast. And then just do the weighted sum over the inputs and apply the threshold function. Is it above or below the threshold? Then you pass the signal on, uh, the output, yes or no. Are you one side or the other side of the threshold? So what this really is, uh, I, I think I in a way, what, what this uh, weighted sum is, is a line in the space, and you are either above the threshold or below the threshold. So this is just high-dimensional space of seven dimensions, and the uh, weighted sum is some hyperplane through this space, and you are above the threshold or below the threshold. One neuron just does this very simple calculation, and this one neuron is called Persetron. Originally, in the neural network research, single neuron is a Persetron that takes in the weighted, the attributes, weights each, it, it, it's each attribute, makes a sum, and then calculates the threshold. Uh, so you can make a, with the training samples, you can sort of adjust the plane. You can train in single uh, Persetron by if you, if you put the label, if you put the next point that is above the hyperplane, but you classify it wrongly, then you adjust the hyperplane a little bit. Like cell progressing math, you adjust the vectors. Right? So you adjust the vectors so that your training error gets minimized. You just twist the hyperplane slowly or rapidly in the space until it classifies as good as possible for that one lane linear separator through the space. This is just a single linear separation, and that's not enough for all the, for all the cases. So you can actually make a multi-layer uh, neural network where you have inputs, you have hidden layer, sort of like that that gets some kind of, each one is a neuron uh, that outputs certain values and then you get one weighted output and this output layer gets the multiple weighted inputs from this middle layer and makes their decision boundary on different combination of linear combination of, each neuron makes a linear combination of attributes uh, one hyperplane, the other hyperplane, uh, etc and the output layer just gets inputs and makes its call. If multiple neurons fire, then multiple inputs get to the output layers and they can fire as well. Um, and these kinds of neural networks can be trained with different types of methods. Uh, uh, 
propagation, sort of you train the method, you, you go back, you adjust the weights one way and the other. So basically, you go iteratively really through the network, adjusting the weights. The deep learning concept that is now very hot, that learns all the cats from the YouTube videos or uh, learns what is on the photograph. So they train very large networks. Very, you make this neural network concept very, very large. Not, not hundreds of thousands, but you go to hundreds of thousands or millions of networks. And it can be also deep, deeper. Uh, you learn basic features, you combine features, etc. Uh, there are some tricks that you don't want very arbitrary small nuances in the vectors in here. If what you want is that each neuron learns something significant. And what, what this means is that it's somehow the, the learning methods should be made somehow so that only very few concepts fire at any given time. Again, this, this uh, Occam's razor. Simpler things explain better thoughts. So, uh, the more comp these more complicated methods can be achieved by combining very simple concepts together. So, uh, this person uh, was just a single linear classifier between the two classes. One side for the sign of this, uh, uh, basically based on this. Uh, line you can get are you is this value larger or smaller uh, than zero what is the sign above or below uh, the hyperplane so from two dimensions to three dimensions just concept just made, makes it hyperplane but the mathematical representation is exactly the same just sign are you on one side or the other side of the, of the plane? Now, what is the theory here? We have, we can put many lines through the data. Which one is the best? There are hyperplanes, one, two, and three. Which one is the best? H2 somehow, yeah? But if, you, if your task is just to make sure that you don't make mistakes in the training, then H1 achieves that. H3 does not achieve that. Okay, H1 is better than H1, uh, H1 is better than H3. But H1 achieves the perfect classification for the training data. What is the, what is the basis for you to say that H2 is better? There is more space. There is more space. It maximizes the, the distance between the cars. Maximizes the, the a decision boundary that we are as far, well, 
we try to be as good as possible somehow, intuitively. And, and that means that this inner classifier, person from both, for person from H1 would have been okay already, because it minimized that there is no training, uh, there is no classification error. If we hit it H1 first, fine, they're done. But uh, what the more uh, complicated methods now try to do is optimize for the largest possible margin between the tasks. So these become optimization methods that try to best fit the best uh, by maximizing the margin between the classes. So, uh, minimizing training error, okay, you can do this, uh, minimize training errors, you can minimize some of the error squares, maximize the margins. And uh, this is something that this optimization is possible uh, thanks to some mathematical optimization techniques, you can actually try to maximize the margins between the classes. And the margin is defined in here. The margin in here is defined by the distance to the closest points. So which points are the closest to this line? Two on one side and one in there defines this line in here and maximize the distance uh, of the line to both sides. And these are called now support vectors. So, so the, the, the points that are defining the maximum boundary between the tasks. Uh, of course, each line you can represent by the hyperplane formula, another hyperplane formula, and you, you want to calculate the distances between the boundaries. That what is the distance from one hyperplane to the other, maximizing this margin between the two. As long as you, you can classify correct in here. But the problem is there, 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 will, be, there will be two problems. One is your your data is not perfect, you will make errors. How do you maximize the margin when there, are, when there sits some white one is there? You have to account for errors is one. And what is the other one? Your data may not be linearly separable as easily as in these examples in here. Uh, so, okay, I will, uh, I'm, I'm finishing wrapping up with that, uh, and perhaps we can come back uh, next time, that how do we deal with this, uh, with this error again, is something that we, we inevitably, we, we will make mistakes. But we can count how many mistakes we make in the training, and we can account for the complexity of the model, and how many errors it makes. So we are back to this kind of the simplest model that makes as little mistakes as possible. And support vector machines are this linear that tries to minimize model complexity and the penalty for the errors. Together optimize for this joint measure. And the other problem is that we want it, you can't just put single lines through there. Yes, you can fit a line with a nice margin, but it's not linear. What happens is that we can introduce a mapping from low dimensional space to some other higher dimensional space. The mapping which would make 
the separation possibly linear. So this is a very, very uh, nice trick so that you, you, you have your data x and y, but you can generate other features based on that. And using these other features, you suddenly can work in the linear space again. And because for linear space, we can optimize easily, if the mapping is such that you can separate linearly, then your optimization package works in this high-dimensional space, not the low-dimensional space. So we fit the linear function, but in a different space. So there is a mapping function from the low-dimensional to the high-dimensional, uh, and the support vector machine still tries to fit the best linear uh, model that maximizes the margin. So this is converted to this, and this is learned, uh, and it, it represents this kind of more complicated decision boundary. Okay, and then, then the examples of this is achieved, and actually uh, this, this space even could be something that would be infinite to construct. This is very counterintuitive to me, because how do you how do you go from low dimension space to something that is infinite space, and then you work in the infinite space? The trick is that you don't generate the data this in the in the new space. We just need some measure, some kernel function. This kernel function is slightly different. That kernel function that just talks about the distances in the in the higher dimensional space, and the optimization package just needs kernel function, not the actual mapping. Okay, but uh, let's uh, stop it here. Uh, lectures are going to uh, on. Uh, the last homework will be, I will make uh, by the end of this week, the last homework tasks based on this decision tree, and layers, etc. Uh, projects. Uh, I don't know how well you have so far got along with the project teams. Uh, those who were in the in the supermarket chain data, I need you to contact me so that we can actually give you the data and you can get started with this, with this project. Um, if some of you are here, I can, I can uh, talk to you immediately now, a couple of minutes. And the rest of you, we will see next week. Okay. 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 Okay.